Morning, folks. How you doing? Like Kurt said, my name is Jeff. I, I don't have a great story uh, behind my name. Uh, my, my mom and dad, they were originally going to name me Mark. I was born. They looked at me. They said, he doesn't look like a Mark. I don't know what that means. Uh, they decided well, he looks more like a Jeffrey, and that's, that's how I got my name. Uh, but uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. I, I just want to thank you guys so much. I want to thank Bill and Kurt so much for entrusting me to come for these past couple of weeks and lead us on this journey through the letter to Philemon. I want to thank you guys for letting me be here uh, to talk about these kind of uncomfortable topics of power and power dynamics, but an important topic, right? I mean, I don't think there's anything that more defines us then how we use the relational power, the power that we have in our relationships, particularly with vulnerable people in our lives. So thank you again for letting me be here and talk about this a little bit. Through the letter to Philemon, I'm learning about something about myself. I'm learning that when I feel powerless, I can be a very unpleasant person to be around. When I feel like I'm out of control of my life, I'm not so much fun to be around. Uh, I've talked up here from the stage at Mosaic a little bit before about some of the circumstances uh, that led my wife Betsy and I to move here to Lincoln. Uh, Just real briefly, we were living in Colorado, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I would imagine most stories that take people from Colorado to Nebraska aren't all that pleasant, Uh, but we were living in Colorado, and uh, we were expecting our first child, our son Severin, and we decided that I should go ahead and quit my job and that we were going to move to St. Louis, which is where I'm from, uh, to pursue uh, another job opportunity. Well, we did that. We moved, and that, that opportunity blew up in my face really quickly. Um, so we found ourselves living in my parents' basement. Ah, ah. Living in my parents' basement, uh, expecting a child, no, no real job to speak of. Uh, and, you know, eventually things turned around. You know, I, I ended up learning a lot. God used that, that time in our lives uh, to teach me an awful lot. But, you know, as, as good as that story turned out, I think that only now, about six years later, am I really starting to assess some of the damage that that situation did um, in my life. You know, I'm learning that I've become super sensitive to things that make me feel out of control of my life. Because that time living in my parents' basement, that was easily the most out of control of my own life that I have ever felt. Um, so i become really sensitive to that. I guess, for instance, I've started having these moments where I'm a strangely compulsive cleaner. And if you'd known me in my 20s, you'd know how weird that is. Um, and, and for me, anyway, you know, that compulsive cleaning, that's really about me trying to grasp for control over something that feels controllable. You know, I can't control my kid's behavior, but I can make this floor look really clean. And I think there's something, there's kind of a cosmic cruelty in life turning me into a compulsive cleaner right in the same season where I become the father of two kids under five. <laughs> but that, that's what happened. Uh, and there are other ways that this shows up. My wife knows, uh, you know, she knows that sometimes she'll bring up uh, some plans that either I don't know about or maybe plans that I do know about that she's told me about but that I've forgotten about. 
and I'll just freak out a little bit. Because this feeling of being out of control of my own life, it's become a big trigger for panic uh, for me. I would imagine that a lot of us understand this feeling a little bit, you know, of, of feeling out of control, whether it's, it's situations in our lives that make us feel out of control or relationships in our lives that we don't feel in control of. We talked a little bit last week, if you were here, you know, we, we all have different kinds of relationships. We all have relationships where we feel like we're the ones in power, where we feel like we have some control over the tone and the agenda, and we all have some relationships where we feel a little bit less in control, where we feel like we hold a little bit less power. And we're examining the relationships in our lives through the lens of this letter in the Bible, the letter to Philemon. And in this story that the letter presents us with, we have two men who I think it's safe to say have about the most dysfunctional and toxic type of relationship that I can imagine. Uh, That's the relationship between a slaveholder and a slave. Another thing that we talked about a little bit last week, we talked about these two dark tendencies uh, that that we as human beings have, Uh, these two ways that sin manifests itself in our world and in our lives that I would argue really don't get the attention that they deserve. And those two things are the human will to dominate others and the human will to exclude others. And I would imagine as we think a little bit about these relationships in our lives, relationships that make us feel a little bit powerless, relationships that make us feel a little bit out of control, of our lives, we probably don't have to look too far before we start to notice these things, the the human will to dominate others and the human will to exclude others playing a bit of a role in our relationships. One other thing we need to talk about a little bit today and we need to kind of set in the background as we have this conversation is the close relationship between power and identity. As you think about it, you know, if, if two people are in a relationship, if you're in a relationship with another person, whenever you're together, whenever you're relating with each other, we're constantly sending messages back and forth about what we think about each other. I'm sending a message to you about who I think that you are, and you're doing the same thing to me. Whether those messages are positive, whether they're negative, whether they're intended or unintended, whether those messages are spoken or unspoken, those messages are constantly being sent. And the thing about toxic power, toxic power is constantly trying to assert and impose a new identity on the person that they're trying to control to kind of set things to their advantage. And it could, it could be done in a really dominating way by imposing an identity of you need me or you belong to me or maybe, you know, you're lucky to have a good job here because if you couldn't be here, you'd be out on the street. Or maybe the powerful can, can try to impose a new identity in kind of an exclusionary way. You don't belong here. You don't belong at the cool table. You're not a true American. Or you kind of embarrass me in front of my friends. So power, toxic power, is constantly trying 
one of the ways it tries to assert itself is to impose a new and kind of perverse identity on the person that it's trying to control and have power over. I'll give you another example. Last week, if you were here, you heard me talk a little bit about a relationship in my life with a friend of mine from college, uh, a guy by the name of Norm, who I bullied um, when I was in college. And one of the things about our relationship is that Norm gave me the power to either build him up or to tear him down. And another way of looking at what was going on in that relationship is Norm gave me the opportunity to either declare an identity over him that said, you are valuable, you are loved, you, you have a place here, you're welcome, or to declare an identity over him that said, you don't have value, you're not welcome here, you have value only insofar as you serve my needs and make me feel good about myself. And I bet that most of us in here, or all of us in here, I would bet, have experienced that type of relationship at some point where you only have value to another person or to an organization uh, you're, you're, you're encountering insofar as you have value to them. You, you have value only insofar as you serve them. Even churches do this sometimes. I bet some of us have felt that from churches in our lives, where where churches only value somebody in terms of, you know, in terms of how, how well they serve the pastor or the organization or something. It kind of reminds me, you know, if you have kids, have you seen Thomas the Tank Engine? Have you had that imposed into your life uh, a little bit? If, you, if you've seen any of Thomas the Tank Engine, what is the greatest compliment that a train can receive? You're a very useful engine. Thomas, you did a great job today. You're a very useful engine. Dan has seen Thomas, um, for sure. You know, as if that's where our value lies, is in we're very useful. When somebody tries to define us like that, you know, only in terms of our value to them, I think a lot of times we're left feeling like we have two options of how to move forward with that. Either we can engage in a power struggle, over our identity, um, you know, and we can try to seize back the power to define ourselves, and that power struggle can become kind of self-perpetuating and never-ending, uh, or we can just give in, and we can feel like, you know, I'm just so burnt out, I'm so tired, I'm so worn down, that we just start to accept that identity that's been thrust upon us. And I think what we find as we look at the letter to Philemon so I think that we find a third way forward where we don't give in to the identity that the powerful in our lives are trying to thrust upon us. And also we don't find ourselves engaged in this ongoing, never-ending, self-perpetuating power struggle. Just to kind of recap the letter to Philemon, here's what we have going on. Uh, Philemon was a wealthy man. He was a leader in the church. He also happened to be a slaveholder. And at some point, one of his slaves, a guy by the name of Onesimus, he runs away from Philemon. He probably also steals from Philemon. And in the course of his running, he runs into the Apostle Paul. And somehow, as a result of that interaction, Onesimus also becomes a Jesus follower. And now Paul has a bit of a problem. What sort of relationship do I look to see restored between these two individuals? 
And so what they decide to do, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, and he sends him with a letter to be read publicly within the church. So this letter that we're about to read, uh, this was read to the whole assembly with Philemon sitting there. This is what it had to say. Chris is going to read. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and faith in in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me, while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thank you very much, Carissa. All right. So again, if you were here last week, our focus was on looking at this letter through the lens of our relationships where we wield power, maybe even in some toxic and dysfunctional ways. And this week, we're flipping that script a little bit, and we're looking, we're going to look at the other side of the coin. What does this letter have to say about what happens when the kingdom of God collides with our relationships where we feel kind of powerless? And that's a little bit more difficult to do. Last week, we were looking at this 
kind of through the point of view of Philemon. This week, we're looking at it through the point of view of Onesimus, but that's hard because this letter is written to Philemon. It's not written to Onesimus. So we don't really know exactly what conversations took place between Paul and Onesimus leading up to this decision. So we're left with what we can kind of infer from this letter was Paul's message to Onesimus himself. That's something we have to be really careful about doing because we can easily infer some, some kind of toxic things uh, from this letter when we, when we look to do that. We have to remember that Paul was addressing a very particular situation in a very particular time and place with particular individuals that he knew intimately and who we do not. Um, And the particular way that Paul and Onesimus decided to address this situation and this relationship, it may or may not be a safe or a wise way to approach other situations and other relationships. Here's what we can say with some certainty. Though, for this particular situation, Paul asked Onesimus to go back to Philemon, to walk back into this toxic relationship, asserting and leaning into his new identity as someone more than a slave, and to walk back into this relationship not really knowing whether Philemon was going to accept or acknowledge that new identity that Onesimus now has and realizes about himself. Because Philemon was very used to a very definite identity that Onesimus carried, the identity of a slave. And in that identity, it was understood that Onesimus only had value insofar as he was useful to Philemon. And Onesimus knew this as well. He knew this very well because it was built into his name, the name Onesimus means useful. So this idea, it was a very common name for a slave child to be given, and you can imagine how that could be used to put a slave in their place. Onesimus' own name was a power play designed to keep him in a vulnerable place. And it's this tendency, this powerful tendency that the that the powerful people and organizations and institutions of our world have to try to assert and impose a perverse new identity on those they want to control that made the message of Jesus so provocative in first century Rome. Because what the Roman Empire would do, they would come to a nation and they would conquer and subdue it and they would, they would sort of personify this human will to dominate. They would come and say, you are our subjects and we are your conqueror. And continuing to be alive and happy is dependent on you accepting that identity about yourself, that you are our subjects. And the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they really personified this will to exclude. They would come saying, you are sinners and you'll always be sinners. And only those with the right ethnicity who follow the right set of customs and follow this right set of behaviors, only they will really be able to enjoy God's favor on their life. And then Jesus came and he said things that completely cut across all these narratives. He came and said, Blessed, happy, favored are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those 
who long to see justice done in their lives. He came as a friend to the poor and to sinners, and he proclaimed, you have value to God. You are loved and significant, and you have a role to play in what God's doing to bring good into the world, if you want it. And that was fundamental to the gospel that Paul proclaimed as well. Elsewhere, in a letter that he wrote uh, to the church at Corinth, he wrote, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Jesus and Paul, together, they were proclaiming a mysterious new reality in the kingdom that powerful people and powerful establishments of this world no longer get the final word on your identity. They no longer get to define others as weak, as stupid, as lesser, as of less value. And in fact, those who are so defined by the world, are particularly going to be elevated in order to show the power of transformative love. That's the gospel that Paul brought into Onesimus' life when they encountered each other. And when Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter, essentially what he's saying is Onesimus is no longer defined by your power over him. I want you to welcome him, not as a slave, but as a brother. I want you to welcome him as you would welcome me. Can you imagine the courage that it took for Onesimus to go back to Philemon? Because Philemon could easily say, he could hear everything that Paul is saying and writing here and just say, nah, I don't really need another brother. I'm really more interested in having Onesimus as a slave. See, that's, that's what I bought him for. That's what his purpose is. That's the way that things are supposed to be. And I think it's only possible for Onesimus to take this gamble, this real gamble of going back into a relationship with Philemon because he's learned to embrace this third way that I talked about earlier. He doesn't have to give in to Philemon's identity for him as a slave. And he doesn't have to engage in a power struggle with Philemon. Uh, He doesn't have to argue with him over who he is. He's learned to accept the identity that Jesus has proclaimed over him. This identity as someone who is loved, as someone who has value, and as somebody who has a role to play in the good that God is bringing into the world just as a gift that he gets just by virtue of being human doesn't have to earn it. He doesn't have to acquire it. And it's not contingent on Philemon acknowledging and accepting it. It's just his. Just like it's just ours. That's the meaning of the gospel. No matter who we are, no matter what our life has looked like, no matter what our story has been up to this point, the love and grace of God is broken into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's inviting us to be a part of the work that God is doing in the world to extend that transformative love everywhere we go. 
And that identity is something that, I don't know about you, I need a reminder of that a lot. I need a reminder to embrace that identity a lot. Uh, No matter where we are on the power spectrum, whether we feel like we've got a lot of power, whether we feel like we have almost no power over our lives, it's always a temptation to define ourselves and find our identity with where we are on the power spectrum. But you know what I realize as I look at this letter? I think it's pretty obvious that the letter to Philemon is good news for Onesimus, but it's also really good news for Philemon as well. Because the news for Philemon sort of that undergirds this, uh, the news for Philemon that lays under the surface is that Philemon's identity is no longer, it no longer has to be found in exercising power and toxic power over other people. And that's great news because as long as we find our identity in our ability to exercise power over others, in our ability to control our own lives, our identity is always going to be fragile. Because all of us are just one bad day away from losing all of that power. So what does it look like then for us to embrace our identity from Christ as a gift? Just a few quick ideas, then we'll be done. Number one, give power in your life. Give voice in your life to people who are going to speak the truth about your identity as somebody who's valuable and loved. And if you don't have people like that in your life, if you don't have a network of friends who can speak the truth of your identity as one who is valuable and loved, that's something that Mosaic would love to help with. I encourage you, talk to Bill or Kurt today and ask how you can be connected with some people in your life who will speak your true identity over you. That's who we want to be as a church. We want to be a community that's proclaiming our true identity over each other and then extending that out to every person in this city, proclaiming our true identity. Number two, when others try to declare one of these imposed, perverted identities over you, just assertively speak the truth. Don't struggle for power. Don't argue. Just tell the truth. I have value. I am loved. I have a role to play in bringing good into the world. If that's not something that you can safely assert in one of your relationships, that's not a safe relationship to be in. And then finally, and for me, this is the most powerful one of all, use the power that you have in other people's lives to proclaim their true identity over them. Because I don't know about you, you know, I have trouble believing my own identity, but I, I find it a lot easier to proclaim other people's value and the fact that they are loved and they have a role to play in the world over them. You know, with me, I'm kind of, nah, I don't know. But I find it very easy to say that over other people. And slowly, I think I'm finding as I proclaim that over other people, it starts to sink in for me as well. I want to say one more thing. I know that we, chances are we have people in the room here today uh, who have been or maybe are still in some relationships 
that, that are toxic, that are abusive, that are even dangerous. And I just want you to know that I think I, sp- I, I, think I speak with some certainty for Mosaic when I say that we love you and we support you, and we want to stand with you any way that we can. The church has been particularly awful. The the church, capital C, uh, has been particularly awful in terms of talking to people who have experienced domestic violence and at times have really sided with toxic power and have recommended or even prescribed some really terrible things. And we just want you to know that we love you and stand with you, and Jesus loves you and stands with you if you are in an abusive and dangerous relationship. And I just want to let you know, you know, there are some organizations in Lincoln that can help you, and I just encourage you to reach out to them. There's the Friendship Home uh, here in Lincoln, Voices of Hope, lots of good organizations that if you are facing a dangerous or abusive relationship, I just really encourage you, I beg you, to reach out to them. Reach out to one of us here. Um, Help us, you know, to proclaim your true identity over you as one who is loved and valued. Let's help you heal and embrace that identity. And I'm going to invite Keith to come up uh, as we enter in uh, to a time of communion together. And I want to invite you to imagine me. How would your life be different if you really believed without a shadow of a doubt that you are loved and valued by God, if you had no doubt that that was true, if you had no doubt that you have a role to play in God's work of bringing good into the world, that's part of what we celebrate as we take communion. As as Keith leads us in this last song, I invite you to come down these center aisles, take the bread and dip it in the cup and take it as a reminder of the Lord giving himself for us so that we could know that we are loved by God and so that he could invite us to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you've shown us who we are. Like Onesimus, our identity isn't determined by the, by the powerful of the world who want to define us, In a world full of power that seeks to dominate and exclude us, you came and gave yourself to liberate us and to invite us in to your kingdom. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.